Welcome to TalkCast and to episode 200, plus or minus one, depending upon the platform you happen to consume TalkCast on. I began this podcast purely to help me clarify in my own mind the ideas of David Deutsch, which then became David Deutsch and Karl Popper, and then it became David Deutsch, Karl Popper, and related thinkers. One of those related thinkers is my guest today. I have a guest, Chiara Marletto. It is rare indeed for me to have guests at all on TalkCast. It's just never been that kind of a podcast. It's more a monologue kind of a podcast. Not that I'm necessarily a monologue kind of a person, or am I? (laughs) Of course, like almost every human being, I am primarily talking as part of a conversation with lots of other people. Nothing remarkable there. But these days, many of those conversations are indeed actually recorded. And the place I prefer most for this is AirChat, which is a new app founded by Naval Ravikant and Brian Norgard. When I was a kid, I used to get involved in these uh, strange conversations. I'm sure you had one as well. What would you prefer to lose if you were forced to choose, your sight or your hearing? I think I used to always say, take my hearing. I can deal without that. I'll keep my sight. Thanks very much. But these days, I'm not quite so sure. I think I like to listen and talk. (laughs) What Naval and Brian are building at AirChat is a place not merely to have conversations, but also it's a new way of creating podcasts. And that, of course, is centre of the bullseye for my interest these days. I've got lots of fancy equipment here and try to make myself sound a lot better than I do in real life. But it is a job of work, as the British might say, to actually produce something like an episode of TalkCast. AirChat really streamlines things and is a marvellous supplement to this podcast, TalkCast, for me. It's a genuine way of turning this one-way channel of information into an actual two-way dialogue. It's talkback podcasting, and I absolutely love it. So come and talk to me at AirChat. Just search the App Store, or whether you're an Apple person or an Android person, just wherever you get your apps from, and you can find AirChat. It's better than Twitter Spaces or X Spaces, whatever they call it these days. It's better than voice messages left using Facebook Messenger or WhatsApp or whatever else you might have tried. AirChat has all the bells and whistles involving studio-level production, also AI and automatic translation, export facilities. It's got all of that stuff, but it's still simple to use. Sounds like an advertisement I'm doing here, doesn't it? Well, it's not, believe me. It's just me singing the praises of something that not many people hitherto know about. It just happens to be something that I use near every single day. I mean, I'd sing the praises of my iPhone here, but... You know, everyone knows about iPhones and Apple products, and they need no special promotion by me. But for now, AirChat does remain a hidden gem on the internet. TalkCast isn't going anywhere at all, but as part of a celebration for this episode 200 of my podcast, I want to let fans know that if you want to talk to me in person, I'm super responsive on AirChat. And, well, never mind me, you can actually talk to Naval yourself and a whole bunch of other people with really diverse interests. And if you've ever thought about getting into podcasting yourself, but you just think it's too difficult, well, AirChat could be a low-resistance way for you to do that. But 
let's get to today's episode. One of those rare ones in which I'm actually talking to someone else. I completed the beginning of Infinity chapter exploration some years ago now, and I spoke to David Deutsch for episode 100. And at that time, I'd already commenced my explorations of his other book, The Fabric of Reality. And I began branching out, uh, discussing some of Popper's work and comparing it to other thinkers, people like Sam Harris or Ayn Rand or Max Tegmark, lots of other people and their ideas. And Chiara Marletto published her first book around about this time that I began talking about the fabric of reality. And that book, The Science of Can and Can't, was the first popular accessible to the layperson account of constructor theory. A new theory of science at the foundations of physics. I think Popular science, for want of another term for books like this, has an absolutely crucial role to play in culture in transmitting our best ideas. I've said over and again that I could and indeed did do university physics even to a master's level, but none of it much helped me truly understand what was actually going on in quantum theory, like the work of David Deutsch did. His book, The Fabric of Reality, Chapter 2... Shadows, it's called, did more to help me understand quantum physics than multiple years sitting in lectures, tutorials, and labs did at the university level with fancy titles like Quantum Physics and Relativity 101 or Higher Quantum Physics 201. Any of that official type formalized stuff just didn't do it for me in the way that Shadows from this book happened to do. So, When I first discovered that David Deutsch was working on a new theory of physics and I read his technical papers on constructive theory, I began to read more widely into what this constructive theory stuff was, what von Neumann himself had said on the topic of a universal constructor, and then what prior thinkers had ever written about in terms of counterfactuals. I'd already done some philosophical work of my own on that at university. All that technical stuff can quite easily blow by you if you're not really engaged from the get-go on what the problems even are that this new theory is trying to solve. Well, this is where Chiara's book is just so helpful and was helpful to me in the same way that the fabric of reality was in terms of quantum physics. The science of can and can't just lays it all out for you. It, It tells you about information theory and quantum information theory, thermodynamics, and epistemology in terms of the constructor theoretic view of what knowledge happens to be. And the significance, of course, of counterfactuals as part of physics. It's a wonderfully clear exposition of the theory as it stands right now. And I cannot recommend the book enough to anyone interested in the latest, deepest physics we know and how it connects to some areas of philosophy. So we explore the book today and lots more as well in this conversation. I even managed to press Chiara on that great issue of our time, the supposed looming superintelligence explosion or the AI apocalypse. It was such a privilege to speak to Chiara. And although TalkCast is not about to pivot into being an interview show by any means, I will be speaking, I hope, to some more physicists over the coming months on TalkCast and AirChat as well, as we continue to explore the fabric of reality, both the book and literally the fabric of reality through the content I create and publish through various channels here. 
Without further ado, though, enjoy this conversation with Chiara Marletta. Hello, Chiara, and thanks so much for joining me for the 200th episode of, of TalkCast. My second only guest ever, actually. So it seems like on average, I get one guest every 100 episodes or so. So, so welcome. Um, Thank you. Let's dive straight in. There's so many facets to your work, and I want to get to the substance of exactly what it is that you work on. But I thought first, it'd be interesting to know about what's brought you here, because you're in a particularly deep area of physics, and I've known a lot of people who have gone into physics, and your area is the deepest. And many people go into physics because they're drawn to astrophysics, they love the pretty images of space or geophysics, there's, there's money to be made by digging stuff out of the ground, and of course, these days there's very fashionable areas of physics like quantum computation. And, you know, if that pays off, that's going to be big, that's going to revolutionise things. But somehow you've managed to find yourself even deeper still than quantum computation. You found yourself at the very foundations of physics. And, and in fact, you're still digging. It's amazing. So can you take me back to Chiara, perhaps at school, perhaps any influences from your family that might have been instrumental there? You read between the lines uh, in The Science of Can and Can't. And it seems like your father had a deep influence on you and your journey from there as a child growing up in Italy through to undergraduate and finally to where you are now, perhaps the leading researcher uh, with uh, just a few others, a handful of others on what purports to be a candidate for our deepest new theory of physical reality. Yeah, um, actually thinking with uh, with hindsight is always interesting because you create a narrative right for what you did and and um, I'm sure that there were um, a number of events during this uh, uh, story that caused me to do various things but I think the way I that the way I think about it now is is more or less like this that um, uh, initially I think I I really enjoyed um, the idea of, of understanding the world in, in various ways. And I think this was clear to me already when early on, I think when my father's particularly, but both my parents, I think they liked to tell me lots of stories. And these stories really fascinated me as a, as a child. So I loved storytelling. I loved um, the idea of, uh, of creating some kind of, uh, well, what I would call now an explanation about things. Uh, you know, a good story is actually a good explanation where you put together the characters in a nice way and then out comes a, a, a great plot. Um, and then this love for storytelling kind of gradually uh, turned into love for, for, for explanations, for, so for, for, for having some kind of deeper understanding of things. And then uh, in secondary school, I think I really liked uh, philosophy, so I was uh, taken by these early philosophers, you know, the Greeks and so on, and it sounded very interesting that they were trying to understand these concepts like infinity and space and time and the universe, etc. And then only later I actually realized that I was looking in the wrong place in the sense that, well, philosophy is very interesting, but, but the thing that really goes at the heart of things is physics. Um, and so that's how, towards the end of secondary school, I matured this, this interest for, for science and physics specifically. And I thought that I would want to dig deeper and see whether, you know, it was really the thing that I was hoping it would be, that it really could tell me something more about, you know, the way that reality works. Um, and then, 
you know, this, this turned into a love for physics, this interest. Uh, and, and I think the, um, the most interesting thing that I still find interesting now uh, is this fact that you can come up with um, explanations for, 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 you know, for what happens around you. And these explanations are, are unifying and they're universal uh, if they're good. And they, they sort of really take you much, much deeper than what you can sense or perceive directly with your senses. Um, and they tell a very interesting, compelling story about the universe. And I think the, the more compelling the story is, the, the better the explanation is, uh, etc. cetera. Um, and anyway, I think it was towards the end of my master's uh, in Torino that I, I realized this fact that somehow uh, this part of physics that was very interesting to me for quantum physics uh, was also extremely mysterious, the way it was presented by, by teachers, right, and, and lectures um, was very confusing, in fact, and, and at least to me. Um, and so this uh, brought me into thinking that maybe I would want to understand uh, the foundations of this field. And so somehow asking here and there, it turned out that quantum information was the field where, um, you know, one could find perhaps a, a better understanding of quantum physics itself. Uh, and that's how I ended up doing a PhD in Oxford. So that's, that's and that's where I uh, met David Deutsch and then Arthur Eckert and various other people that I started working with here. And that's how I ended up being a researcher actually uh, in, in this field. Um, and I think it's always been this interest for trying to find deeper explanations. I think that's the thing that, that really attracted me to physics and made physics so somehow it, I singled it out out of various other disciplines that were also fascinating to me as the the tool to to understand uh, reality, and that that is really mind blowing. It's something that um, perhaps you don't realize at first in school, uh, uh, as you you've already pointed out many times, I guess uh, yourself. Um, often, you know, teachers maybe because we are they're constrained by various things, syllabus and various other things, they may not have the time to to explain that physics is about this fascinating activity. Um, but I think it, this should be said uh, much more often to, to students because um, it would cast a completely different light uh, on, on, on physics itself that usually is perceived maybe as a bit of a sterile, sort of a bit of a hard um, subject that doesn't, it's a bit sort of dry uh, subject that doesn't really give you a lot of uh, you know, satisfaction maybe as you approach it at first. Uh, but actually, this this couldn't be further away from from truth. Really, is is really um, is is really a very deep uh, enterprise, and and uh, yeah, I guess that's why I'm I'm sort of in in this, uh, and and it's so far it's proven really exciting. So I'm happy about the choices. I've seen you up on stage defending the Everettian quantum theory interpretation, the many worlds, the multiverse. I'm just wondering now. It strikes me. Were you already on board? Had you already been persuaded that this was the explanation of quantum theory? Or did you have to wait until you met Arthur and David and you were in the Oxford community before you understood that? Or did you already go to Oxford understanding the Everettian uh, interpretation? So I was uh, lucky that I... So initially, I think the way I was presenting quantum physics in, in, um, you know, in, in undergraduate degree in my undergraduate degree was, was simply the usual way that, that is very um, baffling and confusing, which uses this idea of, of collapse, really, uh, the, the, of the wave function, right? Uh, 
Um, and I guess this takes you as far as, you know, passing exams and, and, and doing calculations. But I think somehow if you start questioning, you know, what is the meaning of all this, you start realizing that maybe this is not the right way of looking at things. So I was lucky that one of my lecturers, which was then the person that I did my thesis with, uh, is this theoretician called Mario Rossetti. He, he had uh, an interest in quantum information. And because of that, he had already been um, primed into thinking that, um, you know, that actually it's better to look at quantum theory uh, in this um, reversible unitary way which is at the heart of uh, the Everettian interpretation. So even though maybe Mario wasn't, uh, I would say, you know, he may, may have been um, gently skeptical about Everettian, uh, inter the Everettian interpretation itself, he was uh, very much uh, in, 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 in favor of this understanding of a measurement as a, as, an, as, a dis as a phenomenon that you can describe within quantum physics. So, you know, you can describe the observer within quantum physics and so on. And, and once you start looking in at, at quantum theory this way, you see, first of all, the measurements make much more sense because they are described just any other, just like any other interaction that, you know, you describe within, within the theory. Um, observers as well, right? So they're just physical subsystems and they can be as small or as large as you like. It doesn't matter. They all fit in into the description. And I think that was something that I already had in my head when I sort of arrived in Oxford. And then in Oxford, uh, I think, uh, the you know the, the way in which quantum information works and how you think about things is deeply uh, rooted into this idea of, of uh, many worlds or uh, and so in that sense it, it was uh, then a kind of perfecting this understanding and definitely I understood much more during the PhD uh, when I thought more carefully about some of these aspects with David and Arthur and Vladko Vedral and so on and other people here that that sort of developed aspects of these of this theory in different directions. But yeah, but I think I had this um, initial dissatisfaction with the collapse uh, way of thinking about things. And uh, somehow I was, uh, you know, once you enter quantum information theory, uh, the way I did with my lecture at the time, um, my thesis advisor, that sort of, uh, I, I, I some, somewhat f fell in love with the uh, with um, with the way of thinking uh, about measurement and observers in a unit in a kind of unified way, and I thought that because it's consistent and it doesn't create problems, um, I thought you know why do you complicate your why, why complicate your life with collapses and other things that create other issues? Let's just go with what the theory says and see what the consequences are. And even if they are uh, perplexing from the philosophical point of view, in fact that's all the better, right? You know, there's, there's more to think about and, and it means the theory is doing what it's supposed to do, which is to surprise you and give you a, a deeper understanding of, of things. Um, yeah, so that's how I ended up here, I guess. No special physics, no magic for the observer, no special exactly. way of needing to account for these things. Yeah. Just have this unitary universal theory that applies to everything yes. everywhere all the time, yes. Um, so. When, when we dig ever deeper, we find that things un tend to unify. And, you know, of course, this is uh, shown by the unification between quantum theory and computation. You end up with quantum computation. And you're going deeper than that. There is this sense in which while the, the quantum computer, in principle, when we have a universal one one day, will be able to compute anything that can be computed, it cannot itself 
transform matter. But this is where, and eventually we'll get there to talk about this in perhaps more detail. Um, the universal constructor, however, would have this property. We don't know how to make one or anything like that yet. Uh, it, it's worth stressing, though, that constructor theory, that very term, can sometimes make people think it's only about this universal constructor, or it's only about looking for this universal constructor. But actually, it's a theory about counterfactuals, which you lay out so brilliantly in your book. Things that might have been, but are not or things that could be and might be brought about if only we make some effort, things like that. So it could be um, the counterfactual other universe that physically exists out there in some higher order space, or it could even be a universe with different physical laws. Constructor theory could, in principle, be able to deal with these different kinds of problems. Perhaps you could sketch the link for me between the universal constructor, or constructors in general, and counterfactuals, perhaps begin by telling the audience, who's the, my audience typically very general, of what even a counterfactual is. Yeah, so um, that is a term that I'm using, that we use uh, together with, with David, uh, to, um, to indicate a particular set of properties that are relevant in physics, and they have to do with um, what is uh, permitted, possible or impossible. Um, and so uh, it's, it's, um, it's as, you know, in, in, in kind of contrast with uh, what usually dynamical laws are about once you specify an initial condition, because once you do that, you are telling a story about what happens, will happen or has happened, depending on where you're looking at. Um, in the universe or in space and time, if you like, you have a kind of relativistic viewpoint. Um, and it doesn't, because you single out a specific trajectory, you are um, avoiding mentioning other possibilities. Um, and also because you si you're singling out a specific dynamical law, you're avoiding mentioning that there could be other laws that might um, well apply to, to describing and explaining what, what uh, the phenomena at hand are. Um, but you're not considering that in, in standard, uh, you know, dynamics because you, you just you have a particular dynamical law and then you see what the predictions are given some boundary or initial conditions. Whereas counterfactuals, um, counterfactual principles, for example, uh, are, are laws that refer to this um, set of allowed or disallowed transformations. And in doing so, they also implicitly single, um, well, they, they rule in or out a certain set of dynamics and a certain set of initial conditions uh, but they um, they have a sort of they exist at a higher level uh, compared to to these dynamical laws because they can constrain them, and so you can think of these principles about counterfactuals as guidelines for um, for guessing dynamics uh, and and uh, boundary conditions uh, and so theories of initial conditions etc. Um, and so you you can see how they capture an additional aspect uh, that is relevant to physics. And so in my book, and generally speaking, in my work, I've been uh, showing, trying to find problems where, where this viewpoint is more fruitful and allows you, uh, you know, a set of methodology, allows you to have a set of methodology at hand that, that uh, otherwise you wouldn't, you wouldn't, you wouldn't be able to, to, to use. And so it's, it's more effective at solving problems in those specific um, cases. Um, now, the connection between a counterfactual and constructors and universal constructors is um, more or less like this, that 
so if you think of the um, of the universal constructor uh, the way that phenomenon defined it implicitly uh, is as a machine that uh, can be programmed to perform any physical transformations that's allowed by the laws of physics uh, i guess this is maybe a slightly more constructive theoretic version of, of whatever von Neumann said in, in his writings, but I think that that's the gist of what he had in mind, I think. Um, and so this machine um, has a repertoire, right? So he has a, it has a, a sort of set of transformations that it can perform when given the right program. And there are a set of transformations that it cannot perform no matter what kind of program you, you provide uh, in input. And if you think about what this repertoire looks like it is a way of, uh, it's, it's really a set of counterfactuals. Um, it's a set of rules that, um, that somehow tell you what transformations are allowed and disallowed in, in, in the physical world. So it, there's a sense in which if a universal constructor is, is possible in a given universe, studying the set of transformations that it can or cannot perform is equivalent to studying the whole of physics uh, in the sense that the laws of physics put constraints on this repertoire of the universal constructor and um, understanding why a universal constructor cannot perform some transformations like for example uh, creating energy out of no energy or, or something of this sort um, is in fact understanding why there has to be a certain principle of physics that says that these transformations are disallowed or allowed. Uh, and so um, this is the connection. So the idea is that as you are building this theory of the universal constructor, which you can think constructor theory is an instance of, uh, at the same time you go uncovering a number of principles that uh, tell you how physical reality works. And some of these principles, uh, we may already have some such, you know, we, some, we have some of them already in a sense, uh, maybe not formulated in a fully constructed theoretic way, but for example, uh, thermodynamics is an area where principles of this kind, like the second law of thermodynamics or conservation of energy that I mentioned, uh, already tell you a little bit of uh, what are the constraints that the universal constructor has to deal with when, you know, thinking uh, of, of which transformations it can perform and it cannot perform. Um, but then there are extra principles, principles that have to do, for example, with information theory um, and other aspects of physics that we haven't really uh, tackled properly yet. And the hope is that the, this approach with counterfactuals that constructive theory has allows us to formulate these principles um, and then, you know, thereby adding supplementary laws to the laws that we know at the moment and then allowing us to, to, to guess uh, better explanations for, 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 for physics. Uh, so the, and the, the, this idea that studying the repertoire of a programmable machine like the universal constructor allows you to understand physics and discover laws of physics is an idea that is deeply seated within the quantum theory of information. And uh, I think this is some, a theme that, that uh, is very uh, dear to, to David uh, Deutsch because I think the way in which uh, in, you know the, the the way in which quantum information theory was initially uh, discovered, um, also uh, you know by, by other pioneers, um, was really that they were these people were trying to understand how quantum physics works, and they realized that quantum computers and specifically the universal quantum computer being um, you know using 
quantum theory's uh, most fundamental properties, um, where you know, these quantum computers were actually a good object to study to understand quantum theory itself. And now we are just expanding this logic to a wider set of machines that are more general than computers, and these are constructors, and hopefully to the universal constructor, which is the most uh, general programmable machine that one can think of. And note that maybe the universal constructor is not possible. So we don't know if that's possible or not uh, under the you know, laws of physics that we have, but that itself is, is a way to understand how, how the laws of physics work and how reality works. So in that sense, it's part of this program to find out whether the universal constructor is allowed or not. So even a failure would be a success in a sense, even yeah. if you were to find that you can't construct this thing called yes. the universal construct, that tells you something very deep about the laws yes. of physics and the universe. Um, well, let's get to information then. What is information? I mean, we hear about it talked in terms of computer science. We also have the version of information that falls under the thermodynamic kind of rules as well. So what is information in the classic sense and how is it different to quantum information? Uh, so I think this is a, a very nice example of, of, a, of a property that you can only talk about in terms of counterfactuals uh, if you want to provide a sort of satisfactory uh, physics uh, you know, definition for, for what is information. And I think the way you do that is to shift a little bit the focus instead of saying what information is, as, you know, thinking of it as a sort of substance or, or something like that. You, 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 you say what um, transformations must be allowed on a physical system for it to contain what we uh, all agree can be called information. And uh, if you look at that, it's quite elegant and simple. Uh, you can notice that you know, there are a couple of properties that you want a physical system of that kind to, to have. So the first property is the fact that it has to have a set of states that you can uh, interchange. So if you think of a bit, there are two states and you want to be able to flip zero into one and one into zero. So these are two counterfactual properties. The fact that you can uh, perform these tasks of flipping uh, zero and one into one another. And then the, the, the other property that you want is that these values uh, of the states in question can be copied if you have a replica of this system just like you can do with a bit, you expect a good bit to be interchangeable with another bit. And also if you have two bits together, you want to be able to copy the value of one onto the other, uh, ideally to, to arbitrary high accuracy. And of course with bits, we take this for granted, but if you think of what this means in terms of uh, physics, this requires a number of symmetries to be present in, in the dynamical laws that rule your physical systems and not all physical systems have these properties uh, and not all dynamical laws allow for these properties. Um, and so classical information really requires this idea of, of permutability of states, the fact that you can flip states into one another and copyability. Um, and then the way in which this classical information is different from quantum information is that uh, quantum systems have extra properties. So not only can they um, embody information in this way, so they have sets of states that can be flipped into each other and copied in this way, 
but they have extra properties that uh, some transformations are also impossible in these set of states. And, and the classic uh, property in the case of quantum systems is the fact that if you take um, uh, two different ways of, of embodying a bit that a single quantum system has um, with different physical properties, uh, for example, the orientation of, of, uh, of, a, of a spin along a given axis, uh, and then uh, the orientation of, of the spin along a different axis. Um, if you want to then use all of these states together to, uh, you know, as an information carrier, you will find out that you cannot. And the reason is that you cannot copy all of them simultaneously with the same device. Um, so the copyability property fails at a certain level uh, in the sense that not all states of a quantum systems are copyable in the same way that zero and one are copyable in a classical bit. And paradoxically, this fact that you have fewer, somehow more constraints, you have, you have fewer possibilities available, so you have an extra constraint that says that some things are impossible, suddenly gives you extra computing power if you consider more bits, more quantum bits together. And that's one of the aspects that allows you to have, for example, things like entanglement and so on. But the key difference is really in this copyability property that, uh, has extra property, you know, you have, you have an extra constraint on copyability for quantum systems, which you don't have for classical bits and classical uh, systems. It's fascinating, isn't it? It's almost like a life lesson. There's more constraints, but <laughs> yeah. it actually increases the power yeah. in some way of this, this yeah, system. There's, yes, it's quite, uh, yeah, it's quite nice thought that sometimes constraints are good and they can open up possibilities, yeah. Yes, and we should say to people that it, it, anyone who wants to learn more about information and quantum information, I've never seen a more clarifying way of explaining this than chapters three and four of the science of Canon Carton. So, you know, holidays are coming up, Christmas is coming up. So if anyone's got someone in their family or in their life who's interested in anything from the basics of science through to cutting edge physics and information theory, then this is the book for you. And it gives you a rundown of everything from quantum theory through to thermodynamics and even epistemology. And we're going to get there as well. But we've just talked about information and there is this article that's out there, uh, published 2014, New Scientist, that you co-wrote with David Deutsch. And I can guarantee that you guys did not write the title to the article because the article is titled Reconstructing Physics, the Universe's Information, which is John mm -hmm. Wheeler's position, the, the um, it from bit thing. Uh, and David Deutsch, of course, wrote famously uh, it from qubit, where he counted all of that. So... Is it true, Chiara, as one of the world experts on quantum information theory, is the universe at bottom information? No, and I think that, yeah, the title was, uh, you know, happened as a sort of glitch in the, in the process of <laughs> publication. But yeah, I think that's good because we can then talk about the reason why that's not true. Um, and the reason is that the, um, so first information is this um, entity that, you cannot use, to, so it's something that is, um, you can't use it as primitive, it's, it's a thing that rests, as I said, on a number of properties that uh, systems may not have. And in fact, there are systems in the universe that don't necessarily um, work as information media, so they don't have these two counterfactual, property, counterfactual properties that I mentioned earlier. Uh, so that already in itself says that the universe can't be information, just information, because there are other things uh, that may not have those properties and they're still physical systems and we still, you know, uh, study them and, and, and 
one example is exactly what I was going to say, what I was saying earlier, that, you know, you have these quantum states um, of a quantum system that, uh, you know, they're perfectly allowed states, but if you try to put them together to, um, you know, to, to embody a bit, you, you can't do that because they're not copyable. Uh, so that's an example of a system that you can't use to to in, embody information in the way that um, that that one expects a bit uh, should do. Um, and then the other reason is that the way we think about information is really as a as a thing that is explained in terms of other things. So it's it's uh, you know when you say uh, that certain tasks are allowed permitted uh, to permit information to be embodied in a physical system. Uh, you are referring to some more elementary properties that these systems must have in order to information to, to be uh, instantiated in them. And so these properties are the most fundamental things and maybe even they could be decomposed into more primitive things. So it's somehow it's, the title is also problematic because it somehow suggests that there is this idea of uh, a finite, um, you know, a sort of ultimate uh, primitive entity in an explanation that you can come up with in physics um, and I I think that's not the case um, and you know usually in physics when you find something that you think oh no no you know now we understood everything and everything is is done and dusted there's always something that uh, is a bit problematic and then if you start digging a bit more in that direction you find that there's a hole and then this hole leads to a future theory and so it's, it's a bit, uh, yeah, I think the, the, the title is also in a way too pessimistic that it says that everything can be explained in terms of one thing. Uh, these things usually can be explained themselves in terms of other things and that's part of the game of physics, that's why it's exciting. Um, so yeah, I would say that's, constructive theory definitely is not about explaining that that's the case, in fact it's trying to counter this position and providing more fundamental uh, explanatory elements in terms of which you can explain information and other things and they are based on these counterfactuals um, as, I, as I was saying earlier. But there are many true believers in the simulation hypothesis. Um, do you have any remarks on that? This idea that we are in fact inside a simulation or you haven't seen any 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 fingerprints of the great programmer out there in your, your work? Yeah, uh, that's, that's an interesting hypothesis in the sense that um, it's not so sometimes in physics we have to rule out things as not necessarily just because we can't uh, we, you know we observe something that that uh, refutes them but also because they are not good explanations it's simply um it's a bit like when you discuss the existence of god uh, so you know it's it's um you can't disprove the existence of god by observing things but you can say that you know if you're a physicist and you're thinking about the world uh, and trying to understand it saying that certain things originated with it uh, is not a good explanation. So we, we, we have to, to find something else. And likewise, in this case, um, this theory is, is not explanatory because the programmer is, is not explained. So, so we, we have to, uh, I mean, at least that's the way I think of physics, that uh, physics exactly tries to take these things that are unexplained and build, you know, sort of uh, decompose them into things that can be explained. Uh, and that's actually what, you know, going back to the initial question, that's what got me into physics in the first place. And that's why I find it fascinating. And, and I think uh, David has remarked once before that 
if we're in a simulation, running on what computer where under right. what theory of computation. So Yeah, then you would have to explain all of that. And then that would itself somehow be a different theory from the theory that we are in a simulation. Now, The Science of Can and Can't, your book, it contains not only this material, as I said, about information theory and quantum information theory, but there's a substantive section there on thermodynamics, and we've already talked a little, touched a little on thermodynamics. Thermodynamics doesn't seem to see, if you study a physics degree or if you do physics in high school, you might very well encounter some relativity, you might encounter some quantum theory. Certainly by the time you get to undergraduate, you're going to realise that these are the two theories that do encapsulate our best explanations of the world. But the laws of thermodynamics don't sit neatly in either of those, and they're a set of principles. Why are they different, and what is, in particular, different about the second law? It's always held up as having some almost religious significance in many areas of science. Yeah, the, the second law is um, a very interesting beast because, uh, first of all, there are many versions of it. And so when people say the second law, they often mean different things. Even specialists, they have, you know, there's a way to think about it uh, in the statistical mechanics sense. So Boltzmann's, you know, way of, of imagining um, this law as emerging out of uh, some procedure that allows you to say, well, we have a certain set of uh, dynamical trajectories and uh, if we take um, some uh, common sense assumptions about them, we end up noticing that the most likely point of equilibrium of a given system when let it, you know, to itself has um, a certain property that we can summarize in terms of its uh, entropy um, being uh, sort of maximized. and. And uh, then you have a different way of talking about the second law, which is the, the, the way in which uh, Kelvin Clausius and the founding fathers of uh, the phenomenological thermodynamics were thinking about it, which is in terms of this idea that you cannot convert heat into work with other, without any other side effects. Uh, and so you know, that explains why you cannot use heat to power a boat and, and, and so on. Um, and, and many others, actually, there are some nuanced, uh, you know, different versions of these various principles that I mentioned now. But the problem with all of them is that somehow uh, they, just like with the whole thermodynamics, to, to go back to your question, thermodynamics is often thought of as being a collection of recipes that allow you to uh, make some predictions. Uh, they are very useful to, you know, uh, to figure out how a heat engine you know, works and, and what's the efficiency and so on. Um, but they are not that fundamental. So somehow they're all sort of as applying at this higher, you know, larger scale macroscopic systems. And if you go, however, down to the microscopic um, dynamics, that's the fundamental thing. So dynamics really tells you the whole story. And then because you can't maybe compute sometimes the dynamics is intractable, you cannot uh, solve the equations, it's useful to have some thermodynamics helping you out there. But it doesn't really tell you much about, nothing fundamental about the universe. That's, I think, a very widespread view in, in physics and certainly what you get maybe the first time you encounter thermodynamics in, in courses. Uh, however, there's something to be said about that in the sense that you can uh, question that statement and in fact imagine that perhaps the reason why 
the laws of thermodynamics appear to be um, just applicable to these macroscopic scales that we haven't really expressed them properly. So uh, there could be a way of formulating them in such a way that they are still compatible with the fundamental dynamics that we have for microscopic particles. But at the same time, these laws add to, to those dynamical laws simply because the thermodynamics is formulated at this higher level of abstraction where you're not picking a particular formalism, so you're not expressing them in uh, the Newtonian or Hamiltonian formalism or in, in the, you know, um, in, you, uh, applying Schrodinger equation to a particular case. They, they are formulated at the, at the level of abstraction of principles, and so they uh, have this power of allowing us to um, single out specific laws and say that they are allowed and others are not. And uh, so if we had uh, an exact, more um, precise version of the second law, this would do us a great service because we could then use it in order to, um, you know, guess maybe future theories of physics, uh, etc. And in a sense, I think thermodynamics has been used in this way in the past, secretly in, in a way, but, but, but physicists have been using it in this way too, except that, um, as I said, it's still difficult to do that because the uh, principles are at some scale just break down so you don't know what they tell you about a specific system. So that's, that's one aspect that makes thermodynamics at the same time interesting but also frustrating because it has this feature of being incomplete in my view. And then there's this other aspect which is uh, well, one of the most interesting ones, which is the fact that the second law particularly is a law that says that there must be some kind of irreversibility occurring at a certain scale or um, in, you know, in, in some sense. So what the irreversibility is, whether it's the fact that once you convert work into heat, you cannot go back without side effects or, uh, you know, the fact that uh, once you increase entropy and then the system is isolated, it just stays there. Um, so there are different ways in which people think about irreversibility, but there is this idea. And unfortunately, uh, irreversibility appears to be uh, just in conflict with the fact that the dynamical laws that rule the microscopic dynamics are time reversal symmetric, so they don't display irreversibility. So there is this conflict, and th that's also why people tend to think that thermodynamics can only hold in an approximate way, because they say, well, if the dynamical laws are true, then it must be that to get some irreversibility out of something that's reversible, we've got to do some approximations. Um, and that's true in Boltzmann's uh, case, it's true in partly in the thermodynamic, uh, phenomenological thermodynamics case of, of Clausius and Kelvin, etc. Um, and then again, here I want to say maybe that's not true. Maybe the, the, the reason why we are finding this hard to reconcile these two things, irreversibility and reversibility, is that we are not expressing the irreversibility at the right level, so we're not using the right tools. And this is where constructive theory comes in because uh, I think that there's a way of talking about irreversibility uh, in terms of the fact that um, a task is possible in one direction but not in the reverse, which is still compatible with the fact that dynamical laws are reversible simply because a task being performed doesn't correspond to the fact that the dynamical trajectory is allowed. So there are two different concepts. And so the fact that you say that the task is possible in the forward direction but not in the reverse direction doesn't necessarily contradict the fact that the 
trajectories of particles that compose the substrates of these tasks are in fact reversible in the way that we expect them to be. And so that's what I've kind of been discussing in the book and I've been working on in my work with also with some collaborators here. And that's very exciting because it kind of gives you a way out of this apparent dichotomy between reversibility and irreversibility that you're stuck with if you stay within the traditional conception of physics. So this way out, would that involve showing that a constructor cannot be built, which would now enable you to reverse certain processes? Yes. Yes, and I think uh, this idea was already there in the early days, relatively early days of thermodynamics. For example, uh, Planck has uh, a lot of writings about this uh, and the, you know, the, the, the key experiment where, you know, a dual experiment where you have um, a sort of uh, isolated, um, adiabatic isolated enclosure with, with some water inside and you have a uh, stirrer that can sort of be actioned by mechanical means to increase its temperature. That's one task. So increase the temperature of this, of this uh, jar of water uh, by mechanical means only. It's an example of um, a statement of the kind, there is a constructor that can perform the task in this direction, so of increasing the temperature. But then if you try to look at um, whether there could be a constructor that can perform the reverse task, meaning cool down the bucket or the jar of water by the same means, so just by using mechanical means, by stirring, uh, you will see that there's no such constructor and there's not because you haven't thought hard enough, it's simply because that's one instance of the second law. And Planck already had this um, I would say constructive theoretic intuition. Uh, in fact, I was very much inspired by, by, by his uh, works in the sense that he is already talking about the, the fact that in one direction you can have a cycle that can perform a transformation and in the opposite direction there isn't such a cycle. And the cycle is really a constructor, so it's an object that can perform a transformation then be reset to its original state without uh, undoing the transformation itself. And now if you this is okay in standard thermodynamics, we, we know this. But if you now try to elevate this as a, as, you know, um, at the, at the, to the rank of a principle uh, and, and try to imagine exactly a statement of the second law that says the constructor is allowed in one direction but not in the other of a given transformation, and you see, uh, you, 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 know, you, you want to see whether this statement is compatible with the fact that the dynamics that rules the elementary components of these entities is a reversible dynamics, you will see that actually the two statements are compatible. And it's simply because the fact that, the fact that you have a task that's performable by a constructor in one direction but not in the reverse um, isn't in contradiction with the fact that the dynamics that you're running is reversible. Because if you run the dynamics in reverse, you're not performing the task in reverse. I think that's a very subtle idea. And, and uh, my collaborator, I think Maria Violaris, was uh, the person who actually demonstrated this within a sort of quantum model, uh, even with an actual system, showing that this is the case, that the, you know, reversible laws of quantum theory are compatible with this statement. And, and that's, that's fun. That's interesting. Um, and it's a hope to have actually a formulation of the second law, which is exact. Um, so it's to do really with how hard the task is in one direction as opposed to the opposite direction. 
and and you can be even quantitative about this um, just in a slightly different way from from the usual way that you do in thermodynamics with entropies so if you were to stir your sugar in your tea on average the kinetic energy of the particles inside of your tea is going to increase simply because the one measure of temperature is that the, if the average temperature the average kinetic energy of the particles is a measure of the temperature now there's no such stirring that could go on which would slow down the particles in fact if you wanted to slow down the particles you'd have to have information about them and then to break yes. them in some way and uh, that seems to be uh, at, at the very least an intractable task <laughs> to do yes so you could do it with other means right so you could cool down the bucket of what you know the jar of water or the tea but you would have to use a heat sink which is yeah. uh, not just a mechanical source of work so you would have to sort of allow for uh, some kind of dissipation if you like or you, you would have to sort of um, uh, involving the constructor an additional element that wasn't there in one direction so that's that's the that's the idea so the same kind of constructor that works in one direction doesn't work in the reverse direction mm -hmm. and this is true for many tasks so in fact this thermodynamic this view of thinking of the second law allows you to generalize it to other realms of, of uh, physics where you may not have something like a thermal equilibrium or temperature and things like that but you still have this irreversibility present because a certain task is harder one way than the opposite way, uh, where harder means what I just said, that you know, a given constructor in one direction doesn't work for the backward direction. Now, um, you're working on some of what I would say are the most interesting and deep problems in the entirety of science. But, and I know you don't have a huge social media presence, so you may miss the fact that the topic du jour at the moment is the oncoming apocalypse from the AI and AGI people who think that superintelligence is about to take over the world. And they might very well be screaming at you, Chiara Maletto, that you should be using your brain power to try and solve this, to try and stop the, the robots from taking over the world. Have you got a view on this at all? It is the topic du jour at the moment with GPT-4. People are very, yeah. very excited that these things are about to become self-aware and self-improving and escape from the box. What do you think about how close we are, if that's the right word, to AGI and whether or not uh, AI is going to escape from our control? Well, um, okay, on, on how close we are, um, yeah, I'm not an expert. I think the it seems to me we are very far. And the problem is that Actually, we don't even know where we are. That's the problem, because it seems to me that we don't have uh, an understanding of what, what, is, what the target is. So the, the problem with uh, this study in artificial intelligence is that uh, for sure there are some technological developments that are stunning and interesting that no one denies that. But somehow they're not doing what we would be hoping they, you know, they, they they should be doing in the sense that um, the, we don't have, a, a, I think, a, a theory, a good understanding, a good scientific theory of what um, the capacity, uh, you know, what, what, what um, uh, the capacity of the brain is in the sense that we don't have a way to define properties that like creativity or originality or consciousness, we can call them in many, many different ways, intelligence. I, uh, you know, I don't mind uh, which terminology you use, but uh, we all know what roughly what we mean, but we don't have a theory of what that is, uh, like a scientific theory that tells us that's what we want. Uh, so therefore, when 
you know, when, when we have a, a particular way of um, dealing with certain optimization problems within a programmable machine, then we say, oh, great, we are sort of doing what you were emulating human thinking. It, that's, to me, it's very hard to believe because we don't know what human thinking really does. Uh, of course, we know at the microscopic level what happens in the brain. There are atoms and they obey quantum theory. Then at the higher level, there are neurons and we have an understanding at the medical level of various things to do with currents and synapses and various other things. But then there's a gap between th that understanding, which is good, and the higher level description of what's going on in the mind when we come up with an idea. Um, and so in that sense, I think we can't say that we're making that much progress if we haven't, you know, first we should develop this theory and then we can then say, oh, okay, look, we managed now to do this and that and that. Uh, so that's my, my view on that topic. The other aspect is, um, should, be, should we worry about it? Well, uh, yeah, I mean, I think you should be, uh, I mean, that's a question that you can ask about lots of pieces of technology. And well, more than worrying is more like we should think about having a good, uh, you know, um, a good basis in the society for how to use these things. And these are things that I guess scientists uh, can't help much with, uh, not, not at least in their profession. So scientists do think about the stuff and they produce things and then these things get used and they can be used in a good way or in a bad way. Uh, and it seems to me this is the problem that happens with any technological development that is, is disruptive. Just think about when cars came about, right? So I'm sure that people were worried about people being run over in the streets and, and so on. And then there was an issue of how do we regulate these things, etc. And then some rules were put on and then some of them were ridiculous, but others were not. And then the, the rules that were ridiculous were removed and gradually we've co-evolved, etc. So I think these are problems that exist not specifically in relation to this technology. I don't see this as a particularly, uh, you know, as a, as a singularity. I think it's just another kind of technology that we are developing and we have to, of course, think about how to use it wisely. Um, and finally, I want to say this thing that there is this aspect that we can't even know. We don't even know how to, how to instill in a human, you know, how do we create, this is something that probably teachers are, uh, you know, very much interested in uh, and parents, how do we make, how do we help a human, a human being that's growing up, for example, to uh, become passionate about knowledge uh, and, and become passionate about having new ideas and or never mind whether they're growing up, even, even, uh, you know, adults, how, how do we, how do we make someone interested in things and, and, and creative? And um, I don't know, there are theories about education. Some of them are good, others not. Um, but we, we don't have an understanding of how this process uh, works. And so uh, this is a very big problem. It's, it's, it's a big problem because, you know, we have lots of more time, you know, we have lots more time on our hands because of technology, which is good, uh, at least in part of the world. But then I'm not sure we're using the time properly. So it would be nice if instead of wasting the time, we could use it to, to do something creative. Uh, it's a very know. important point. I mean, yeah. um, the, 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 the discussion right now is all around AGI and trying to find avenues to AGI, concerns about AGI. But actually, we've got these things, GIs, these 
you know, people, these children, uh, yeah. and we don't even know yet how to maximise, as you say, their creativity within ourselves. So never mind the, the artificial version, the, 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 the natural version has, has enough problems, I suppose. So that's one hobby horse. The, another hobby horse uh, that, that arises um, out of your book, which I'm absolutely fascinated by, is the question of fine-tuning, the fine-tuning of the constants and the laws of nature. You seem to have been inspired, a little at least, by... The Goldilocks Enigma, which is one of um, Paul Davies' many books that touches on this topic. And it was one that was specially focused on this issue. Often Davies writes these grand books that cover a whole lot of things. But this book is a great one because it focuses in yeah. on uh, the question of fine-tuning. For, for, for listeners, the, the, the problem seems to be that the constants of nature or the parameters seem to be fine-tuned. And then, indeed, the laws themselves seem to be fine-tuned for life. Change this or that parameter and forget about life in the universe. You know, you won't perhaps even have a universe. It might be a matterless void or it might just be one big, huge ball of hydrogen, something like that. If we start changing the laws of nature, we seem to radically transform what's possible out there. What, what does constructor theory add to this discussion, if anything, about the mystery that it seems to be fine-tuning, because some people have denied it's ever been a problem. I remember uh, the late Victor Stenger, he, one of his final books that he published before his death was The Fallacy of Fine-Tuning. And he, he was a particle physicist who denied there was even a problem here, nothing to see here kind of thing. But many people since have written books to say, no, 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 this is a real genuine problem. Does constructor theory add a new window on the question of fine-tuning? Yeah, this is um, an interesting uh, direction, something that, uh, you know, is one of those uh, maybe unexpected things that maybe constructive theory could be up with, uh, could, could be of help with. Um, the, so the first thing to notice is that the, um, again, the formulation of the fine tuning problem is itself a bit uh, problematic in the sense that when you, when you think of varying a law of physics, there are many different ways in which you can do that. And um, it's difficult to define a distance in the space of all theories from the theory that you have, because uh, you know, it depends what, what you are varying, but uh, you may be varying some constants in the laws, or you may be varying the form. You, know, you can add terms and see what happens uh, if you, the terms are you know, uh, growing magnitude and so on. Um, but it's really a, a very difficult job to guess in which direction to make a variation. And so it's difficult to be quantitative about uh, what is a small and what is a big variation in a given, given a particular law. So that's already a problem. And the thing that constructive theory brings in here is that, it, first of all, it gives you a way to, to see that if you formulate the laws in a different way, you will see that what counts as a small variation in this other way of formulating the laws may actually be a very big variation in the, in, in the standard way of using dynamical laws. So in the case of constructor theory, imagine you have a, uh, instead of your dynamical law that, I don't know, Newton's laws or whatever, quantum theory's laws that are probably more uh, closer to the truth than, than Newton's, um, in that case, you just have these dynamics and you can vary it in the ways that I said or other ways. 
and note not and notice that if you do that you end up with laws that don't even allow for things like chemical bonds to occur and and so therefore the very basic building blocks of reality are just falling apart and so let alone life uh, but in constructor theory you have a different way of formulating the laws right so you have this um set of principles that basically have uh you know if you imagine the set of all possible transformations they divide it into two camps one being the possible transformations and the other being the impossible transformations now what is a small variation there i don't know but it could be that a small variation is a small modification of this boundary of what is possible right so you could slightly enlarge it or make it smaller and so you have fewer tasks available and and which tasks do you choose in order to make this variation so all of these questions are not answered but they they are there to illustrate that um supposing that you take this view about how to make a small variation in the constructor theory way of formulating laws and then you want to see what that looks like in the traditional conception of physics you will see that the um the change so what you're changing is um a set of tasks being possible but you're still requiring some tasks to be possible and that doesn't correspond to um to uh the small change in the other camp in the in the in the traditional conception of physics way of formulating things so uh this is to illustrate that uh, we don't know how to formulate the problem in the first place. So that's one, one first thing to say. The other thing to say is that if you look at the laws in constructor theory, um, and you consider the fact that if you want some tasks, this is a, a long uh, argument to be made, but in short, if you want a task that requires objects of a given, of a certain complexity to be created out of uh, elementary uh, material, materials um, you will always require uh, a number of um, things to be allowed by the laws of physics for these tasks to be possible for this complex object to be producible out of elementary um, building blocks and these things include uh, stable bonds uh, not only that they also include um, life um, entities that can error correct to be around uh, so that the task can be performed to better and better accuracy etc so a small variation in the constructor theory sense so changing just a set of tasks slightly that are possible doesn't necessarily mean that uh, you end up with a huge variation in in the possibility of things like life but not only life chemistry and other things so it doesn't seem to, so this seems to indicate that if you take a naive uh, way of changing the laws by a small variation in constructor theory, you don't incur in these uh, bizarre, huge variations that lead to a problem as in the traditional conception of physics. Now, this is a speculation, so it's something that we haven't really worked on, but I think it's an interesting lesson somehow that constructor theory teaches us at this level that uh, something that looks like a huge problem in a given formulation may not exist in a, in a different one. And watch this space in the sense that I don't know how this will end, but it's an interesting consideration.
Yeah, well, constructive theory opens up a new way of looking at traditional problems in new ways, which is always a promising avenue for our ability to make progress. One of the most exciting parts of the book, uh, and which I say again, it's not just that the science of can and can't is a pure science book. It also is a book that I would say comfortably fits alongside the beginning and infinity of the fabric of reality. It's like a cousin to those books. And it's in the lineage of, you know, Popper's great work, you know, the conjectures and refutations, because you bring a new understanding, a constructive theoretic understanding of knowledge, and you have a parsimonious way of distinguishing knowledge from information. We've already talked about information as being this entity which has the property of being able to be flipped and copied or in the case of quantum information theory some of those copies are impossible but what is knowledge and how is knowledge to be distinguished from any other kind of prosaic form of information uh, yeah so this is um connected to this problem we were talking about earlier so we don't have a theory of creativity or how we create knowledge well i don't think we have even a theory of knowledge that's the problem so we need in physics uh, so, so that's maybe the first starting point that we need to, um, to deal with. And in constructive theory, you can give some, you know, hints as to how you, you could do that because, um, you have this nice handle that on the information that is, uh, you know, you allow, you know, using constructive theory allows you to, uh, describe information in terms of these physical systems that can contain it and it's uh, their, their uh, counterfactual properties. So this copyability and permutability of states and so on. Uh, and then you can say, well, knowledge is actually a special a kind of special kind of information. Um, so of this thing that can be embodied in these physical systems with the properties that I just said, um, with extra counterfactual properties. And uh, the extra counterfactual properties are the fact that this kind of information um, has the ability to uh, affect, to, to cause transformations on other physical systems and to retain the property of causing it again. So this is, um, in a sense, an idea of resilient information. So it's a, information that tends to, to hang about and stay there and, and sort of not, not uh, evaporate very quickly over relevant timescales of a given dynamical system, but it just stays there and it's almost like an invariant property um, and this this um, this entity uh, you can you can describe it in terms of this ability to stay instantiated in physical systems which is a counterfactual ability or a counterfactual property of the of, of the particular kind of information we're talking about and it's nice because it seems to me this um, decouples knowledge from subjects uh knowing subjects and so in a, in a way this uh you know of course is rooted into these ideas of, of uh epistemological ideas of Karl Popper's and David's ideas as well and nicely decouples therefore the idea of, of knowledge from subjectivity and and things that are maybe one of the reasons why this idea of um the problem of having a physical theory of knowledge isn't taken that seriously by physicists because they usually repelled by anything that sounds, um, you know, even remotely subjective. Uh, whereas with this way of thinking about it, you can actually bring it closer to physics. And it's very much in line also with view, with, with ways of thinking about knowledge in biology, um, or in fact, information that's relevant in biology, because 
of course, parts of the genome uh, are some collections of genes doing sunshade knowledge in this way because they have this property of, of you know, imparting, you know, giving instructions to the cell about how, what to do, uh, as well as also they have the ability, if they are successful in a given environment, to perpetuate themselves through various, uh, you know, generations. And so in that sense, uh, it's nicely friendly also towards biology, this, this idea of knowledge. And so we are hoping that this can be used uh, to also further our understanding of things like the origin of life, the early life uh, stages where we still maybe don't have a, a, you know, as deep an understanding of what happened as we do, say, in the case of uh, evolution, where we already know, you know, that Darwin's theory works. But somehow the early stages from the very beginning to, to when evolution can get started, there are some, some discussions about how this could have happened. And uh, I think hopefully this kind of knowledge, um, this, this new notion of knowledge can help in clarifying some of these aspects. It's one of the most exciting areas of constructive theory, the linking of biology, epistemology and physics. One of the most powerful points that you make there very early on in the science of Canon Kant is how there are certain bacteria that essentially have gone unchanged for billions of years. So you can look out into the physical environment, see mountains, see rocks, and think, ah, there are resilient things that have been there. Geological time is just so long. But in terms of what is truly resilient, it's those DNA strands in that primitive uh, bacteria outlast all of them. I mean, uh, we, we find archaea that perhaps uh, stretch back that three and a half billion years. No mountain range has lasted that long. No rock has lasted that long. And yet we have this deep physical problem. How is it that this thing has been so resilient for so long? Well, it's the knowledge, but what does that mean? How, 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 how in fact, is it maintaining itself in that environment? It, it's a curious thing uh, that for the overwhelming majority of the evolution of life on Earth, bacteria was doing nothing. DNA was actually doing nothing, sitting there rather inert, not evolving, not changing. But presumably there would have been environmental selection pressures, but nothing was happening. Yeah. It's very interesting. I think these questions are, are interesting also, going back to this uh, you know, risk of uh, technology and so on. These questions are, are relevant because if, if we could have an understanding of knowledge that is rooted within physics and uh, also theoretical biology, um, we could then tackle this issue of how do we create knowledge? How, how is it that, that knowledge comes into the world uh, in a more, uh, I would say, scientific and, and uh, way that, that would allow us to also make progress maybe in this other sector of sort of finding ways of creating AGIs uh, and so on. So I'm, I'm hoping this will happen. And just one final question before we finish up, not to do with constructive theory, but to do with you've proposed with some colleagues an experiment for testing general relativity in the, 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 under the quantum regime. Can you speak a little bit about that? I think it's a rather unique approach to the, a possible experiment and, and what are the holdups in actually doing this experiment? Yeah, so this is uh, work that I've been doing with uh, Vlad Kovedral, who is working here in Oxford. Um, and um, it's actually an example of an application of constructive theories principles in an area where we don't have a uh, settled dynamical law with which to make predictions. So as, as, as um, I think everyone knows now, uh, the 
you know, the, the way in which you describe gravity is basically with uh, Einstein's general relativity. Um, and this theory is classical in the sense that it does not have, uh, it doesn't permit quantum information, right? So it doesn't have quantum superpositions. It doesn't have any of the features of quantum theory. Uh, so gravity is a classical entity in this sense. So it doesn't allow for superpositions. Whereas masses and energies can exist in superpositions of different values because that's what quantum theory says about particles with masses and also energies of these particles and so on. And because anything with a energy or mass gravitates, there is a problem because then what happens when you have like gravity interacting with something that is uh, capable of being in a superposition uh, like quantum theory says. And this problem has been around for a while, uh, it's already pointed out by many people in the 50s, uh, even before. I think Feynman was the person who uh, maybe phrased it more clearly with this uh, idea of just thinking what happens when you have a mass in a quantum superposition, what does the gravitational field do with, with it? Um, and as a result of that, lots of theories have been proposed. So there are lots of dynamical models that you have been pr proposed within the quantum gravity program. However, they haven't been tested. And uh, also they have problems conceptually and also the mathematical level. So in a sense, we are not really sure if we wanted to make a prediction about what does the gravitational field do when, in, you know, when, when interacting with a quantum system, we, we wouldn't know which model to choose because uh, we have no idea of, uh, uh, of which one is the, the, the most reliable one out of the ones we have. And some of them don't work uh, also in, in some regimes, etc. So I think what we realized with Vlatko is that we could use, instead of so forget dynamical laws for a second and uh, think instead of principles, right? So that's what, that's the beauty of principles. They don't use like second law of thermodynamics, like conservation of energy. They don't use necessarily dynamics to, um, to express uh, themselves, but they are general rules that you can apply even when you don't know what the dynamics is. And so likewise, construct a series principles uh, about the um, uh, information theory have this feature. So you can apply some of the theories, some of the principles of, of constructive theory of information to this system where you have gravity interacting with a mass because both of them can be seen as approximate information media. And uh, just the quantum mass is also a quantum information medium. So it has these extra properties. And when you do that, you, you, you can prove a nice result, which is basically a generalization of what we already know from quantum information, but it allows you to talk about uh, a system like gravity that may not obey quantum theory. So it may not fit into quantum information itself. And that's why we need the principles of constructor theory. And this, this result says something like this, that if you have a system, for example, like gravity, that is capable of interacting with two other quantum systems and, and create uh, entanglement between these two systems, then itself, this system itself, must have some quantum features. So it's, um, it's like a statement of, you know, saying that you've got a channel, you have a system that has some channel capacity, and if you can use it as a channel to create entanglement between two systems that you know can get entangled, like quantum masses, then you, you're proving something about that channel and the fact that it has to be quantum itself. So you're not really measuring anything on that system. So that's why it's powerful, this idea, because you don't have to measure anything about gravity itself, which is difficult. That's what 
uh, is very difficult to do because you need very high energies to do anything with gravity because it's a very weak um, type of interaction. But you can indirectly check whether it's quantum by seeing whether it can do, it can create this entanglement between masses. So, so does that mean it would, it would rule out the notion that gravity is classical? Yes, so if you could do this experiment in a laboratory, you would rule out the possibility that, yes, you would rule out the possibility that gravity is described by classical theory, uh, like general relativity. So it would mean that general relativity has to be changed in one of the ways that we thought with quantum gravity, or maybe with a different way, depending on where you're going. But I think it has to be modified in, in, to accommodate quantum features. Something that has been doubted uh, by many, I think uh, most famously, I think Penrose had this view that somehow uh, gravity would cause quantum systems to collapse at a certain scale and therefore would end up, you know, he would bet on the, on the classicality of gravity winning over the quantumness of, classical, of quantum systems. Whereas if we could perform this experiment and see entanglement, this would be a completely um, mind-blowing thing because it would really be the first confirmation that, uh, well, the, the first refutation of, of Einstein's general relativity as a classical theory and also a corroboration of these programs for quantum gravity, for quantizing gravity, that haven't so far had any uh, experimental or observational support. And the cool thing about this is that you can do this in a laboratory, so you don't have to go at very high uh, energies like you know, use things like um, particle accelerators or consider experiments that involve early universe type um, considerations and so on. You, you, can, you can do this in, in a, at, at relatively low energies. So this means that the general relativistic effects are not there yet. So it's, it's a very funny regime where you can, you know, go and check whether gravity is quantum without gravity behaving uh, you know, without the general relativistic features of gravity being relevant. Uh, and, and this is the thing that was found promising, not just by us, but also by, by other people from the community of quantum gravity. And it's nice that this was, um, if you like, a, a, you know, the sort of um, a byproduct of thinking about stuff in this information theoretic way. So that's, in a way, one, one example of the power of principles. Why is it that they are so powerful? Because even if you, you know, even if you're just a pragmatist and you don't care about whether it was fundamental or not, which sometimes is the position that, that some physicists have, uh, you know, they, they prove useful whether or not you think they're fundamental, because when you don't know which dynamics you, you need to use, you can appeal to them. And if you think that they are good principles like locality or the principle of um, some principles that are at the basis of information theory that anyone would, would think is, are, are good principles, then you can rely on them to make some predictions. And one of them is this prediction here, and that's very exciting. So we're really hoping that someone will do this experiment and it may, it may happen. So it is, you know, people are looking so, so, for support for so that. So what's the holdup then? Why, why hasn't the experiment been done? If the recipe is there, is it a technical matter? Is it a funding matter? Is there something else? Uh, so it's a combination of things. I think the, uh, so the, the masses, so one can make an, a quick estimate of the amount of, uh, you know, w what would give a, a measurable effect on the masses, so a measurable quant uh, for, um, amount of entanglement. Um, and the masses that you need to, to generate this effect uh, are slightly over the current limitations for 
what we can superpose in a lab. So I think uh, it's something like 10 to minus 12 kilograms, which is more or less the size of, I mean, if you want to have a sort of approximate way of thinking about it, it's like a cell is, has that weight, a human cell maybe. Um, and uh, we currently can superpose masses that are uh, four orders of magnitude, uh, four or five orders of magnitude uh, lower than that. Um, but the reason why this is promising is that we are not, we don't need to go all the way to this um, particular number that's called Planck's mass, which is 10 to minus eight kilograms, which is a huge object by quantum standards. It would require a lot more effort and it's the usual value that people in quantum gravity thought would be relevant for seeing quantum effects in gravity. Whereas this idea shows you that you can, in fact, do this with lower masses that are much closer to the experimental abilities that we have at the moment. So what I think this will happen is just a question of um, the funding, because this requires obviously a long, a relatively long uh, term project, maybe it's five, 10 years. And um, there are some teams in the world that have the expertise for this. They just have to, you know, get on with it and decide to do it. Uh, and and um, also we have to choose the right technology. So it's a difficult experiment, but it's not an impossible experiment, which is what most people thought would be the case for, for testing quantum gravity. And that's why maybe part of the scientific community was a bit skeptical about this program of quantizing gravity, because it just produced so far things that seem to have predictions that were very, very far away from any experimental capability. Uh, so in a, in a sense, some people started saying, well, if we can't observe it, why even, quant you know, well, why would you bother quantizing it? Which is an argument that I don't really uh, agree with, but uh, it's nice to be able to actually give some experimental uh, confirmation or, or support to these, to these theories out there. Also because we, we don't know which theories is, you know, mo most of them have problems. So somehow I guess maybe having some experimental way of looking into things would help us maybe having more um, information about how to tweak these theories or change them all together and think of a different approach. Uh, so yeah, so I think the, um, it will ha I think it will happen and it's much closer to realization than, than it was before, but it requires um, a number of, of things and also an international collaboration probably because it requires expertise to be collected from different teams around the world. This is happening, so you know, I'm hoping in a few years time we can discuss how it went. Yes. Well, thank you so much for your time, Chiara. As I say again to thank people, you. they really should go out and get a hold of The Science of Can and Can't. It's out there on audio book format. You can get it as a paperback. It'd be lovely as a, as a hardback gift for, for Christmas for anyone out there. But where else uh, can people find out information about your research and constructor theory in general? Uh, so there is this uh, constructortheory.org website that you you can find uh, on the internet is, uh, there are lots of, um, well, number of didactic uh, resources on constructor theory, some videos, uh, some explanatory material as well for, you know, in, as an introduction. And then you can also find information on my own personal website, uh, which is chiaramaletto.com. Okay. Thank you so much, Chiara, and I hope Thank to you. speak to you again soon. Yeah, thank you so much, Great. Thank you. If you'd like to support my work here at all at TopCast, please go to www.bretthall.org. Here's the webpage. And there are links there to my Patreon support pages or my PayPal account where you can make a one-off donation. Until next time. Bye-bye.